Our scripture reading this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. It's located in your church Bibles on page 954. Please stand, if you are able, as we read from the New Testament. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Please be seated. Thank you, Norelay. You know, one of the things I love about this country is its history, which, aside from jokes by envious Europeans about it being too short, its history is actually immensely rich. I hope you learned in school about the way that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams went back and forth about who was going to write the Declaration of Independence until Jefferson finally gave in. Or about Andrew Jackson, who, like some 18th century John Wayne, brought a notorious bad guy into custody uh, outside his own courtroom in Tennessee, telling him, surrender this instant or I'll blow you through. Or about the story of Ulysses Grant, who one winter's night uh, made his way into a, uh, a, an inn in his hometown in Galena, Illinois, where a convention of lawyers was meeting clustered around the fire. And Grant, as he often did, appeared to be dressed like some shabby wanderer so that one of the lawyers looked up from the fire and said, here's a stranger gentleman, and by the looks of him, uh, he's uh, traveled through hell to get here this morning. That's right, said Grant cheerfully, and how did you find things down here, he was asked. Just like here, Grant replied, lawyers all closest to the fire. <laughs> which, which brings us broadly to our theme this morning in 1 Corinthians 6. How has Paul responded to the Corinthians in this letter? Well, it's interesting as you see the way that he has communicated with them. Kind of like Jefferson and Adams, he's begun the letter with an interdependent humility, hasn't he? But now, like Jackson, he's throwing down the gauntlet and insisting that those who are holding out against the gospel within the church surrender. 
And why should they do so? Well, as Grant explained to the lawyers in that Illinois tavern, they should listen to him because eternity is in view. And no matter how unimpressive the gospel might seem in this life, it is the people of Jesus who have been given the key to the future. So the message to the Corinthians is let them get their house in order as they deal with this issue of lawsuits. If you would uh, turn to the text as Renee just read it to us, we're going to look at this part of the chapter under three instructions that Paul makes to the church in Corinth. So verses 1 through 11, beginning with verses 1 through 6. And this first instruction, don't go to the world's courts to settle the church's arguments. What does Paul say? When one of you has a grievance, literally a deed or a matter against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Paul is actually not talking hypothetically here. Remember, he's not in Corinth at this point. It's clear, as his sources have told him, that one of the members of the church has taken another member to the city courts. It's not hypothetical. It's actually happening in real time. They are suing one another. So here's what we don't know. We don't know what the lawsuit was about. Some commentators have suggested it was the same issue which Paul has addressed in chapter 5, which we're going to look at next week. However, that's unlikely. Why is it unlikely? Well, it's unlikely because Paul describes this lawsuit in verse 2 as about a small or a trivial matter. Whereas what has happened in chapter 5 clearly is something that Paul finds so outrageous that it's not even the kind of things that pagans would put up with. So the weight of the two matters is being contrasted. It's quite different. It's unlikely that they were the same thing. And it's at, in fact, in the way that the Corinthians are dealing with this, it's all upside down. The incident in chapter 5 is something major, which the Corinthian church has dealt with as trivial. And the incident in chapter 6 is a trivial thing, which because of the division among them, they have treated as a major crime. So much so that they've needed to go to pagan courts to get justice over a fellow believer. And notice Paul's response is to treat both matters in both chapters 5 and 6 as both of them serious errors, which he's writing about because he loves this church and he wants to see them handle things in the right way as befits people of the gospel. Now, what is it that troubles Paul so much about the prospect of Corinthians in, uh, Corinthian Christians suing one another? Well, three things as you look at this. First of all, there's the aspect of the inside and the outside. Look at uh, chapter 6, verse 1. You can see here how Paul has a profound sense of the inside life and the outside reputation of the church. On the inside are the saints, literally those undeservedly declared right with God through Jesus. And on the outside, those who oppose or live apart from or have not received that gospel message. The church, in Paul's view, truly functions like a close family with, to quote Robert De Niro, a circle of trust operating within it. The sense of this is Paul's outrage and his hurt on behalf of the church community the way that this uh, act of taking a lawsuit against another member is damaging the church. How dare they do this, he asks. What gall they have to do so. 
when they too have received mercy from the same Lord as their brothers. This is throwing pearls before swine. What does the world know of things that bind us together in Christ? Verse 6, brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. It's just not on. The second aspect is the present future aspect of things. If there's an inside-outside component, there's also a present and a future component. Verse 2, do you not know, Paul asks, and maybe they don't, that the saints will judge the world. In other words, it's not just that there are things that are to be properly cared for within the family of the church now, but there are things that the church will be called to do beyond this life, which we have scarcely any conception of. This is a fact, Paul is saying, one day the church will sit in judgment on the world. And practically, if we cozy up right now to the world and forget that by going to the world to ask what is right and true and just and holy, we will be losing the plot, Paul says. Don't you know that we are to judge angels, he continues, and maybe they don't. Maybe we don't. Maybe we've never considered that in the kinds of bonds that we have between each other as a church of Jesus. This active distinction between the present and the future and the inside and the outside is vital for Paul. You know, it's one of the reasons, and it's not well understood when uh, people come visit sometimes, why Christians make such a distinction when it comes to the communion meal, that it's not open to those who have not received Christ and are members of a church that preaches the gospel. But it has to do with this present and future and this inside and outside distinction. So communion is for those who have submitted to Jesus within the context of a church membership. It's not that others aren't welcome, but they are welcome to take up that same offer that's been presented to them as we look at communion. And that is the offer of Jesus to them at the cross to be their rescue. And so Paul, with this in view, is respecting here the dividing line that the Spirit of God himself has drawn in the human race Because of Christ, we have been brought near by his sacrifice, or we have not. In other words, it's not about what you belong to here and now, but it's about what you belong to forever, who you belong to forever, and his cross that defines you. And the third aspect here is the despised and the respected One of the things that we have misunderstood about Christians through the ages, particularly Christians in the first century, is that these people in the church were typically drawn from the bottom of the barrel, socially, economically speaking. They were the despised of the world and they knew it. Not many of you were noble, Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 26. I don't know if you know the story of the Countess of Huntingdon, Selina Hastings, who told George Whitfield that as an aristocrat, she knew she was saved only by an M. Not many, Paul had said, not, not any. But most of these, the vast majority, were the social underclass. They were the poor, perhaps they were slaves, perhaps they had been slaves. They were not the kind of people who in in Corinthian society were expected to win. Reminded of the scene in On the Waterfront where Marlon Brando and Rod Steiger are traveling in the back of the cab 
And Marlon Brando plays this washed-up boxer who's telling his brother Charlie with hopeless regret, you don't understand, I could have had class. I could have been a contender. In other words, boxing for him was the way to do that, to achieve some status and some security, some wealth. But these people were like those people in the back of the cab. They, they didn't expect ever to rule. They expected the rich in Corinthian society to get preference and to do what they wanted in the church, but not them. And Paul's asking them, why do you give away your privilege in Christ? He's asking these people, why take these matters before those who have no standing in the church? Don't go to the world's courts to settle the church's arguments. But nevertheless, they did, and particularly the wealthy. Second, don't place your rights above your brother or sister's value, verses 7 to 8. There's no doubt that we, like ancient Greeks, live in a litigious society, a society that is well used to lawsuits, where trivial matters can be quite easily taken to court. I was reading about a lady who was so frightened by the Halloween Horror Night at Universal Studios in Florida that she filed a lawsuit against Universal Studios for emotional distress for her and her granddaughter for $15,000. Universal apparently settled out of court. Not to be unsympathetic, but if you go to the Halloween Horror Night, aren't you paying for some measure of significant emotional distress? It's kind of the point. In ancient Corinth, there was no formal process to introduce a lawsuit. Court cases would be held in open, usually in the marketplace, and you would turn up and you would wait your turn and make your case. And although there were magistrates of a sort who presided over trials, they didn't act at all like modern judges. Everyone knew that the magistrates were corrupt. Paul himself later spent two years in prison because the Roman judge was waiting for a bribe to release him. Court cases were designed for the wealthy to win. And other than magistrates, there were no court officers, no attorneys, no bailiffs, just two litigants arguing their case before a jury. And sometimes the juries could be very large indeed because everybody would turn up. There's a record of one jury being 1,500 people. And it was the jury who would decide the matter on a majority vote, guilt or innocence, sentencing or acquittal. So what was wrong about going to, church, going to court in Corinth? Well, Paul seems concerned that a lot of people in Corinth will hear a bad report about the way that Christians are being divided, if only because it's the size of the jury that will hear it. And what will that then say about Christ? And what will it say to those people about the gospel? I said, he says, I appeal to you in chapter 1 that there be no divisions among you and much of the reason he's saying that is because of what it says about the gospel to those who are investigating the claims of Christ. Is Christ divided, he asks in chapter 1 verse 12, because if you bring each other to court, almost certainly he will appear so. And the power of the gospel to reconcile people will be shown to be utterly ineffective. So he writes in chapter 6 verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. In other words, if you take this to court, you have already lost. How so? Well, because not only will they have traded in the gospel birthright for a stew of worldly justification, but when Christians turn up at court to sue each other, 
This is the message they will bring with them, unintended or not. Well, Christ and the gospel are unable to fix this. Let's see if the world can do better. So he continues, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves are wrong and defraud even your own brother. I think we need to understand Paul is not talking about all legal matters here, including some which will affect Christians. He's not talking about criminal matters that should be properly handled by the police and by the courts. Christians, according to Romans 13, are not somehow immune to the general laws of the land. When Paul himself was brought before the excellently named Porcius Festus, which I've always thought would be an excellent name for a barbecue restaurant, maybe Porcius Festus, Paul makes clear to that man that he has not broken Jewish or Roman pagan law. In fact, he insists that if he has been shown to have done so, he will take whatever the penalty is for doing so, including death. Paul doesn't say exactly what has happened here, but he makes clear in verse 5 of chapter 2 that this is a dispute between brothers and of a sort that can be and should be handled within the church. Paul describes what they are doing with the lawsuit as defrauding each other, you'll notice. I think there are two types of defrauding probably going on here. On the one hand, he's saying to them, you are defrauding of the world by suggesting to the watching world that your actions in taking each other to court will show that there is no difference at all between the church and the world. In other words, your religion is a pious smokescreen behind which you operate in no different way than the world does. There is nothing to your claim that Christ makes you different. It's just you wear it with a dog collar, just like everybody else you're about getting out on top. On the other hand, he's saying to them, you defraud yourselves by demonstrating that to you the bonds of the church are no stronger than your next disagreement with whoever it will be. And we know this, it's quite rampant in our society. People fall into disagreements with each other in church and then just go to another church. But these courts were famously corrupt. So any believer that took his case there, particularly the poor, were not going to be advantaged. In doing so, in taking a fellow believer there, he's saying you are defrauding yourself because you are saying if we, if we cannot retain fellowship with these other Christians and disagree over the issue at hand and still be Christians together, we are saying this matters more to us, this matter, whatever it is, than our fellowship in Christ. Whatever the matter is, this matter means more to me than your brotherhood or your sisterhood to me in Jesus. And Paul pushes back at us. Why not suffer wrong? Think of all of those heated disagreements that you'll see on Facebook. Or perhaps disagreements in some other circle where our tendency nowadays is just to isolate ourselves and to spend time in confirmation bias with the group that agrees with us. And it's been shown that Facebook structures things that way, so those are the conversations you have. 
But no matter, we're, no wonder we're living in such a polarized society if that's the case, where people do not learn to work through disagreement and learn to live with those who don't see the things the way they do. So Paul is saying to us, what's the worst thing that could happen if you don't say what you are tempted to say at that moment? If you don't write that next zinger, which is just going to solve the problem for everybody. Ask yourself, he's saying, what's best? Isn't it worth more not injuring the name of Christ or breaking with your brother and sister? It's no coincidence, I think, that the wisest and the best thing that the Apostle Simon Peter ever said in Matthew 16 was followed in short order by the dumbest thing he ever said. That's what it is to be human. We get a sense that we are right and we just keep on trucking. Francis Schaeffer used to say, ride your tiger. But you have to be careful when you ride tigers because tigers are known to eat people. Paul is concerned about the health and the vitality of the Corinthian church. And we practically, right, by application of this, obviously we are going to disagree. Stony Point, I think, is, I think this is one of its strengths, is made up of a wide and a diverse group of Christians, socially, politically, denominationally. And you may struggle to find something you can agree with your fellow Stony Pointer on. Let me suggest to you something that you can say. You can say, listen, even though we're not agreeing about this one matter, I need you to know that I am glad that you are my brother, that you are my sister in Christ. Particularly now, in the kind of society, and the kind of world we're living in, we need to be careful not to separate from one another over these secondary matters, however important to us they may appear. They're all of them secondary to the cross. Don't flay the skin off somebody because you disagree with them. Don't give the impression to people who don't believe in Christ that there is no difference with the world in these matters. Judge not is the command in Matthew 7, which means don't condemn people. Don't write people off. Discuss the disagreement by all means, certainly do so, and remain disagreed if that's what it comes to at the end of the day, but take it offline, step away, meet in person, ask for help rather than show your disagreement as believers between scores of people on Facebook. Don't play judge and jury, don't place your right to be right above your brother or your sister's value. And finally, verses 9 through 11, don't hide your sin from a world that needs to see Christ. Of course, that statement is probably the very last thing that you expect Paul to be coming to as he writes these things in 1 Corinthians 6. Because it seems that one of Paul's objections would surely be that the church of Jesus shouldn't be hanging out its dirty laundry for the world to see. But it's fascinating. That's where you expect him to end with all of the things that he said, but he actually says the opposite. Because the truth of the way the church really is needs to be shown to the world. The truth of who we really are in Christ. So notice that that is not the reason he's been objecting to Christians taking issues to court. Instead, he's happy for Christians to tell their whole story to the world 
to their Corinthian neighbours are not stories of spiritual superiority, not stories of unflagging moral success, not over-dramatized story of how I was such a mess and then I came to Christ and now I'm perfect and have the perfect family. Now, this is the list of the people he knew in Corinth, and I'm quite sure, as a pastor, he knew who he was speaking to within his congregation, and it wasn't a large congregation. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. That was his congregation. That's what they had been. That was their story. They all knew it. That's, a, that's why he's able to say it. That was their testimony to the world. When we come to lists like this, we tend to pick one or two lifestyles from that list and say to the world, see, that's wrong. But that wasn't the testimony of the early church. The testimony of the early church is that was me. And Christ has saved me. Christ has rescued me. The lists, of course, were not intended to be exhaustive, as if these were the only sins that were committed in Corinth. And Saul is not writing them because he's defending the life of decent, sinless people. He's writing them because people need to see if they're in that situation that they too can come to Christ. So remember the first sin on the list here and think of Jesus' compassion to the sexually immoral. To the woman who was caught in adultery in John 8. We read nothing there of the man who presumably was in some way involved in the intrigue with the Pharisees. But Jesus told her firmly, go and sin no more. He didn't tell her, you are condemned. I forgive you, he says. And so here Paul is telling them not to hide their stories. Far from it, these are their stories. This is the testimony. This is the power of the miracle at Corinth that people could be rescued from those things that they had held on to tightly because they thought they were those things, their only rescue. And so Paul is able to say, such was some of you because of the power of Christ. So here's the irony here we are, if we are Corinthians, hearing this letter from Paul and thinking that we have to be quiet about our sin. But Paul, on the contrary, says, go public with it. Tell your whole story. Share with people the details of your whole testimony. Let's put that laundry on, out on the clothesline for all to see. I'm not ashamed, he's saying, of having you with your history in the church on the contrary, he's saying, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God who has rescued you from such things and wants to rescue so many others. In closing, perhaps we ourselves have the opportunity to ask, who chose you? Who chose you? Who chose me? with all the hurt and the mess, perhaps, that we were in, or in the blindness of our own pride, or perhaps we need to be reminded now who it is that we come to with all the hurt and the mess that we might presently find ourselves in if we have forgotten the truth and the power of the gospel. 
and the relentless forgiveness of Jesus. For those who will lay down their pride inside and outside the church, Paul is saying, God wants you. And this will be your boast, won't it? Not look at what I have done. Not look at who I have become. But look at what Christ has done. Look at what he has made me in his rescue, in his love, in his mercy. Let the people hear that story in the court of public opinion, Paul is saying. And let them sit back in wonder. Let's pray. Father, as we saw Cass tell his story of rescue, we can reflect on the fact that we don't often think about the details of our own rescue and what it is now that we boast in. Far too often, Father, I find myself reverting to a, a worldly way of thinking about things. So I, my security, my anxiety rests on what I have done or what I can do, whereas the peace and the joy of the church is that we rest on what Christ has done for us. Lord, help us to live in the good of these things with a welcome open to all those who would come hear the gospel or hear our stories, not about us, but about the glory of Jesus Christ crucified. In his name we pray. Amen.